Amen. The preaching of God's Word is found from this parable that Christ teaches from verse 19 onward. And instead of taking it all at once, we'll take it as the Lord gives us opportunity in three uh, times together. So this morning we take up particularly verses 19 through 23. To focus our attention here again, those few verses, Luke 16, 19 through 23. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and there and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, if this story were to have stopped at verse 21, and I were to ask you the question, which would you rather be? Would you rather be the rich man, or would you rather be Lazarus? Imagine that none of us would say, well, I'd rather be Lazarus. Because notice the description of both men. You have this certain rich man who was clothed in purple. Purple was an exclusive color for those who had means. And notice in fine linen, not just ragged clothes, but well-processed, well-spun clothes. And he fared sumptuously every day. The idea being he had feasts. Nothing was lacking that he needed. And then you have this other man named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate. So he has an estate, this rich man. doesn't just have a house on the street, but he has an estate fenced in and well provided for. And Lazarus is brought and laid at his gate. And what is he but full of sores? And he desired not the sumptuous delicacies of the rich man, but simply the leftovers, the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And if we can say this, the only friends belonging to Lazarus were these dogs that came and licked his sores. Now, it is most blessed to us that our Lord Jesus Christ is the true prophet who instructs us in truth. However inconvenient for us, however contrary to the world's thoughts and message, Christ comes and presents a true reckoning of things. And He challenges us to see things more clearly. He directs our attention to the true target for our souls. And notice the context of the passage is His dealing with those who justify themselves, verse 15, before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination, is cursed in the sight of God. And he thus sets forth this parable to solidify his statement against the Pharisees, who outwardly appeared religious, and likewise outwardly were well provided for and were esteemed by men 
as in some sense the pinnacle of what men could attain in the presence of this world. Notice the text sets before these two men, these characters of the story with their earthly lives and this change that is brought about by death. The rich man noted, if you read commentaries of an older sort, you'll see him named Dives for various reasons, not in, in needed for our attention, but this rich man and this other man, Lazarus. And as we've noted, outward estate could be no different, uh, no more different. Their outward estate was, as it were, complete opposite. You can think of it this way. It'd be the idea of living in Ladue versus living in a trailer park. To get it sensible to us, it'd be the difference between living in a mansion in Frontenac with acres upon acres versus living in some government housing where all around are addicts and men who are given to violence. That's the difference. And this man is brought to beg. And he's hardly able to sustain himself. And he's not coming, begging as we often see just for cash that they can get their next fix and abuse themselves more fully. He simply wants crumbs. So we have a tremendous contrast set before us in the text. But notice there's a massive change that takes place. And it takes place when, as the text indicates, it came to pass, verse 22, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And here's the point that would have caused great stumbling for the Pharisees. Because now he is found in hell. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, notice this language, being in torments. And instead of being near to the covenant people, instead of being near to the land of promise, it says, he saw Abraham afar off. And who does he see but Lazarus with him in his bosom, this position of intimacy and comfort and blessing. Note well here, will consider something of the torments that are to come to those who die outside of Christ as the Lord gives us opportunity and occasion. But note simply here that death brings to pass a great change. It's something that our world doesn't consider. Think about the way you hear death spoken of. Universally, anyone who dies is then mentioned in the following way. Well, at least they're now in a better place. Can you find somebody, anybody that you know has died, that it's not been said of them, well, at least they're now at peace. Now, you and I may know these men were dissolute. They were prone to all unimaginable sins even. And now they go, as it were, into a better place. The rich are in the better place. The poor are in a better place. The sinners are in a better place. The righteous are in a better place. The Muslim is in a better place. The Hindu is in a better place. The atheist is in a better place. Everyone is in a better place. And I dare say that deep within, you presume that you'll be in the better place. Now, I do not wish to challenge any well-founded hope, but I do wish for you to see the searching word that Christ presents not to the atheist, 
but to the religious. Who's before Christ at this time? It's not as if he's off in the land of Samaria with these mixtures of false and true religion. He's not beyond the boundaries of Israel speaking to the Syrians or the Egyptians. He's speaking to the Pharisees before him, religious leaders. And he's challenging them saying, you have misunderstood what happens at death. You've made presumptions. You assume that all will be well. And moreover, you assume that when things go well in this life, that that's a certain indication that things are going to go well in life to come. Notice what Christ says. Both of them die, and there is a magnificent change that takes place. Here, Lazarus, who was sitting at the gate begging for crumbs, and if he had received crumbs... He wouldn't have bagged it up, put it aside, and say, give me a dollar. He would have been pleased to receive crumbs. The only medicine he gets is the saliva of dogs licking his wounds. He has nothing. But now at death, he is brought to have all things. He has the enjoyment of heaven itself. And this rich man is brought from his sumptuous feasting to the unending torment of hell. Brethren, we need in our world that sterilizes death, that distances death. Think of this for a moment. Has anyone here seen someone die? Has anyone here been called to the side of one who is near death's door and been there when the life finally vanishes? If you have... It is among the most sobering things that you will ever experience because you see one passing from this world. Think of this. As soon as they die, they now enter unchangeably into their everlasting state. And it is a great comfort when there's an abundant witness that those who have so breathed their last in this life have trusted in Christ and have shown forth that faith, that we have great encouragement to reckon them as entering into that blessed estate of heaven. But brethren, there is no more sober thing than to be by the bedside of one who breathes their last, and there is no witness of their faith. In fact, there is only witness of their sin. Well, we wish to consider this morning what the change is that is brought about by death. And notice the text is forcing upon us this consideration that whatever the outward circumstances of men are in this world, death ushers in a great and lasting change. Now, we ought to be clear, this isn't saying that rich men go to hell and poor men go to heaven. But what Christ is getting at, He's, as it were, presenting such a forceful teaching that men would search themselves and say, by what standard do I think that God is pleased to receive me into heaven? And He's doing so by reminding us that death grips everyone. It can be an overwhelming thought to be if a husband by your wife when uh, there's a child brought into this world and there's such a flood of emotion that grips the Father, but there's something that hits us, a whisper perhaps, whether soon or late, this child will die. 
This child may die in the next 24 hours. This child may die 100 years from now. And the father feels, Lord willing, this impressive burden. I have a small window to train up this child in the truth of God's grace. And if I falter there, whatever else I'm successful in, I fail my child. I may give them the best education. I may give them the most broad experiences of entertainment. I may give them a happy life, a good family, the best food, clothing, and everything else. But if I fail this, I fail all. Because I might care for their earthly life, but if I'm not preparing them for the life that is longer, the life that is everlasting, I'm a failure as a parent. Now, brethren, it doesn't have to be about children. We need to look ourselves in the mirror and realize this. We look ourselves in the mirror upon a promotion, upon a pronouncement of health, upon marriage, upon children, upon all these things, and we see smiles in our faces. We look ourselves in the mirror and we've lost a job. We've lost and decreased pay. We've been told that there's a terminal illness. These things then bring sadness to our faces. And we don't mean to say that that shouldn't be the case. But there's a deeper mirror to look at. The mirror of the next world. Here's the challenge for you and for me this morning. To consider well that whatever else happens, whatever has happened, Whatever will happen, note this clearly in your mind. You will breathe your last. You will die. And at that point, all that will matter is whether or not you are in Christ and thus ushered into heaven by His grace. So consider then three things this morning. Firstly, life in this world. Secondly, the fact of death. And thirdly, life after this world. These three things before us this morning. Firstly, then, life in this world. And notice the focus upon what is visible. The things that we see. This dominates our assessment, doesn't it? And so if someone says, how are things going? What do we typically say? Oh, it's going well. You know, I've been healthy lately. You know, I just got a job promotion. Oh, my wife's pregnant or... You know, our children are doing well in school, and none of this is wrong. It's not that it's misguided for us to acknowledge the good things, but there's a challenge that Christ is providing us in this text. And the challenge is to look beyond what is visible, what is outward and tangible and seen and experienced, as it were, in this life. Notice in the visible world, there's a great diversity. We see this. We see the rich, we see the poor. We see those who are outwardly having things go well. We see those who outwardly are having things go ill. This is a common experience. Christ, in fact, says, listen, you will have the poor with you always. Do you realize that there's no, you know, you hear people's vision and mission statements of some charitable organizations, and it's things like, you know, our mission is to end poverty. You say, are you kidding me? Like, give up. It's not going to happen. Our mission is to end child hunger. You're ridiculous. That's not going to end. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be charitably, lovingly caring for them, but let's get our goals straight. Let's be clear. We need to show compassion. We have no hope of ending world hunger. You know, all of these antics of the world today are at best pipe dreams. 
And moreover, through an unbelieving world, they offer no real solace and peace, nor even true measures to answer the outward concern. But fundamental to this movement, in many instances, is a consideration that really what matters is the outward state. You can see this in all of the ridiculous antics that men have today about pets, about men and the environment. It's all about what is seen and touchable, tangible. If this is going well, well, then we're doing our job. Everything's going well. And if we're suffering outwardly, well, then nothing's going well. And isn't that true in our own prayers? Don't we often find ourselves praying in such ways? Lord, nothing's going well right now. And if we set back and we think about what we mean, it's because we're sick. You know, I've had a fever for two days. My whole life is ruined. You know, nothing's going well right now. Well, why? Well, because I missed out on the job promotion. Elijah had a better cause. And likewise, Jonah had a better cause when they despaired of life. Because it wasn't about the outward things, but it was about the things of God's kingdom. And yet even they were reproved. Even they were corrected. Now, brethren... Our world and our culture particularly highlight what is seen. Everything is pumped into our consideration about life is good when life goes well. That's the good life. And so you hear things in advertising. You deserve it, right? You deserve a vacation. You deserve to indulge yourselves. You deserve to take time and have me time and time with the boys and time with the ladies and these kinds of things. And there, at the foundation of it all, is this misguided concept that the outward pleasures of this world are what really matter. And if we have the outward pleasures of this world, then we have all that matters. You can look at most advertising and see that that's the ground upon which their whole appeal is predicated. You deserve a good life, and if you have the good life, you have all that you need. No, don't you dare think that there's something more important. Christ is challenging that. He acknowledges the diversity, rich and poor, but He presents to us then the consideration of what is unseen. And this is something we need to reckon with. We are to judge this world by merely what is seen. We're to consider as well what is unseen. Because that is likewise in this world. We live as so many atheists, practically speaking, when we judge our lives by merely what is touched. Instead of those who know that God has made man both body and soul. Now this invisible world, is often what escapes our attention. Last week, if you were here in the catechism class, you would have heard and seen the children struggle a bit. You know, when they were asked, well, touch your body. All of them could do that. They touched their hand. You know, they pointed to their body. Now, touch your soul. And there is this confusion on their faces. And the reality is, well, you can't. It's immaterial. You can't touch your soul. You can sort of point. But really, what are you pointing at? You're pointing at your body. We talk about the mind as the seat of our thoughts. We talk about the heart as the seat of our affections, which is encompassed by the soul, the seat of our being. You can't touch it. And yet, that doesn't mean it's not true. 
It simply means it's different than the material world. Which then introduces something for us. There is the possibility of things going well to the material side of things, while things regarding the immaterial side, the spiritual side, are actually in shambles. This is Christ's point, among other things, when he says, look, here's a man for whom it could be said all things outwardly are going well. And here's another man for whom it could be said all things outwardly are going ill. But the change that we'll consider brings to our view that it was actually opposite in the things that really mattered. The man who outwardly had all things going well actually inwardly going well. And the man who outwardly had all things going ill actually had everything that is far more important going well. You can see this in the contrast that where is the beggar when he dies? He is, verse 22, brought to Abraham's bosom. Now this is something that is provided for no little sort of discussion among commentators, but fundamentally what this is getting at is the man was a believer. Who is Abraham? He's the father of faith. And so what's being said is this man, though impoverished and suffering, is now in fellowship with the one who had faith. So what's being brought to us is to see that this man, though despised by others, though looked at, and in some sense you can almost imagine it, as parents are passing by, there would have been prayers ushered unto God, Oh God, don't let my child become like this beggar. But God, who sees things as they are, sees the beggar's faith. And he receives the blessing of faith when it is that death comes. What's the point? The invisible side of things, the spiritual side of things, may significantly differ from the visible and material side of things. This isn't, again, to say that rich men are all sinners and poor men are all believers. Christ's point is to show us, by contrast, what is needing our attention, which is putting upon us the question, how do I assess my life? What is important to me? For what, I mean, You can assess it this way. For what do I give thanks to God? And if it only is around the sphere of outward things, that ought to send off alarms. That ought to make us say, if I'm only thanking God for the things that outwardly are good, where is my true treasure? And likewise, if it's only that when we experience outward troubles that we then descend into all of this difficulty, it ought to send off an alarm saying, where is my treasure? But if it is, even when the fiercest and most acute and difficult trouble comes, though we feel and experience the pain, notice that Lazarus wasn't ignorant of or without feeling of these things, It was true that he was, verse 21, desiring to be fed. He wasn't as an unbelieving stoic who just sort of sat back and said, I've got no passion. I have no feeling. Yeah, I'm hungry, but who cares about that? He felt the pain of hunger. He wanted food. But unseen to the outward eye was what God saw. 
that this beggar had faith. He trusted God. So brethren, the question before you with reference to life in this world is what is important to you with reference to life in this world? Though there is the need of food and drink and clothing, Christ acknowledges that, does He not? When He says, listen, take no thought to your body how you'll be clothed. Don't take any thought about what you'll eat and what you'll drink. He doesn't say with a dismissive hand, don't worry about it. He says rather, first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. He's giving a promise saying, your needs will be met. Trust me for this. But He's presenting to us our focus. Seeking first His kingdom and righteousness in spite of what trials come. So in life in this world, what is your priority? Is it the mere establishment of earthly influence, growth, provision? Or is it the justifying of God, the trusting in God, the waiting upon God even in the midst Sorrows. Notice, secondly, the fact of death. This is a thing that the world loves to put off. The consideration of death. It used to be commonplace from the earliest church throughout about the 1800s that the church would have focus on preparing to die. Now, in our world, we look at that, we hear that, we say, how morbid. How absolutely ludicrous. Life is for the living. Life is for enjoyment. Life is for this and that. You know, don't tell me about preparing for death. Brethren, that's why the world's not ready to die. That's why the world loses its mind if you talk about judgment. Because they're not ready for it. But the Christian who looks upon death, and though acknowledging it is the last and great enemy, and thus in one sense trembles at it, yet is able to say, no, the death no longer has a sting. The death no longer has its final power because Christ, my Savior, has overcome it. That said, we still need to think about death. Death is not something lightly treated of in the Bible. Ecclesiastes tells us it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the festivals of celebration. The idea being, this is God's wisdom, by the way, that we ought to acquaint ourselves with the reality. The Scriptures tell us this, and we're taught to petition God for this. Lord, teach me to number my days. Teach me to know mine end. So the fact of death. Well, what is death? Death, we ought to note scripturally, first and foremost, is the consequence of sin. There would be no death among humans were there never sin. That simple fact, by the way, ought to make every one of us look at sin with the utmost of disgust, with the utmost of horror. Think of this. We, we often sort of comfort ourselves, well, at least I'm not murdering somebody, you know, as if that's a comfort. You know, at least I'm not bowing down to idols, as if that's a comfort. That's what the Pharisee did, you know, when Christ will present this and say there's this one who is at the temple and he says, I thank thee, O God, that I am not like this publican, this wicked sinner. Christ shows us the spirituality of the law. It searches the inmost recesses of our being. 
It searches the thoughts, the desires, the affections. It searches the intentions and all of these things. And brethren, when you look at Adam's sin, this world would say, what a little thing. What did he do? He took fruit and ate it. Isn't that how we simplify sin? Don't we take sin and we sort of break it down to the weakest thing and say, this is all it is? You know, what was I doing? Well, I was just having a good time with my friends. What was sin? Well, I was just, you know, trying to protect my good name by lying. You know, what were you doing? Well, I was just trying to have some pleasure in a world of strife. That's how we reduce, as it were, the horror of what sin is. But that which we reduce cannot be reduced. Sin, every sin, as the Bible tells us, is lawlessness. It's a looking unto God and saying, no, I will not do what you call me to do. It's rebellion. The little sins we often characterize as such are the rebellion against God. And so when men are like, you know, I don't understand it. Why do men get hell when they sin? Is a statement really about their gross ignorance regarding the nature of sin and the nature of God. Could you imagine this? Going to a, 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 a husband and you know, his wife cheats on him and you say to him, you know, what's the big deal? Why are you so frustrated? It's not that big of a deal. Your wife cheated on you. Get over it. It happens all the time. Or going to a wife whose husband's been caught with pornography and saying, why are you so frustrated with this? It's not that big of a deal. It's just an image. Everyone needs a little fun time in their lives. You would stand aghast at those things and say, you misunderstand the nature of things. This isn't little. This is massive. This is a tsunami crashing down upon the most intimate relationship known among men. But brethren, what is sin? It is against the most glorious God. There's no such thing as a little sin. And so when we see death as the consequence of sin, it's actually tuning us to say, sin is significant. Sin is big. If you've ever been close to someone that dies, it is natural and right for there to be the sense of longing, the pain that engulfs. Now, for the Christian, it doesn't overcome, it doesn't overwhelm them unto nothingness. But it is nonetheless real. And thus, as Paul says, we are to weep with them that weep. We are to bear the burdens of those who have burdens upon them. It's a consequence of sin. But what is it itself? Sin is the division, the separation of one's soul from their body. And so in today's world, we have all these medical explanations. You know, well, we can measure their brain activity. We can measure their pulse. We can look at their uh, bodily signs. And those have a degree of measurement, but the medical community is still willing to acknowledge there's a mystery to life and death. There can be things that seem to be as if the person's dead, and then minutes later the person's breathing. They don't have an explanation for it. But brethren, what death is, is the severing of that union of body and soul. So you can think of it, how was man made a living creature? Well, it wasn't just his body. God breathed into him the life of the soul. He gave him life. And when was it that Christ died? It was when He commended His Spirit into the Father's hands. 
Death is that separation of body and soul. Here's one thing I wish you to see again and again. The world often parades as attacking one thing when there is an undercurrent of activity trying to under-tunnel a bigger thing. So, for instance, the world will say, you know, satisfy your body and all of these things and focus on your body. Look, I mean, think of this for a moment. If you were to look at any sort of uh, uh, advertising uh, uh, campaign for women, it's all about how you look and makeup and this and that. And there are ways, you know, you go on billboards. There's one that I pass by fairly regularly, and it says something about the injection of Botox to make you smile better. Everything is geared at the body. But brethren, there's an undercurrent, there's an under-tunneling that's actually at work, whether by their advertisement campaign or not, and it's to undercut the priority of the soul. It's to undercut what is really important. Because by distracting you to something that is arguably of any importance, it actually turns you from what is of the most importance. It's akin to this. You know, if you have two men at work kidnapping a child, one might be purpose to distract the parents. And so they say, hey, come over here. Would you look at this and pay attention to this? While the other, unbeknownst to the parent, is actually shouldering away uh, the child. That's what the world is doing. The world loves to point our attention to things that are at best secondary, many times unlawful, but at best secondary. But it has nothing to say about the soul. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. And as we read in the Scriptures, it is appointed for men once to die, and then what? Another chance, right? Another opportunity to get it right. An opportunity to say, you know what, you've done a lot of bad things, now it's time to get it right. Roman Catholicism with its purgatory, nowhere in the Scriptures, all of these false teachings that have as this false understanding that it ultimately doesn't matter this life. What ultimately matters is after you can get it right. But the Scriptures everywhere in unison, death happens, judgment follows immediately. You see that in the Scriptures, right? Notice what happens. Verse 22, the beggar dies. And what happens? He's carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. What happens? The rich man dies, he's buried, and he's in hell the next moment. Death issues the separation. Their body remains in this world, but their soul goes into their everlasting abode, awaiting for that time of the resurrection, both of the just and of the unjust. Notice as well the universality of death. It comes to all men. Every man, you know, as men age, it's amazing how men and women start to hear the commercials and start to think more about how can I ensure I get a few extra years in this world? And so you hear all of these ridiculous diets and these ridiculous campaigns that are promising if you buy this and if you obey this and if you do this, you'll get another 10, 20 years. If you give up that, you'll at least have a few more years. And we have nothing to say against the extension of life, but let's be sure we understand this. Whether you get an additional 20, 30, 40, 50 years or not, whether you reach the age of Methuselah, 
you will die. It is without question. Now, brethren, think of this. It's ended. We look back and perhaps we had vacations. How much time did you spend planning your vacation? Perhaps you spent little time. It was planned for you. Perhaps you spent a bunch of time thinking about all of these things. And for what? A transient moment going to sightsee with family, with friends, and then returning back to the doldrums of home. Brethren, how much time have you planned for that transition that will come at death? How much time have you planned with your children telling them you're going to die? The world hears that and perhaps you and I feel that and say, I want to protect my children from that. Get this in your brain. You can't protect anyone from death. You can't protect them from that. When the world says it's cruel to tell your children they're going to die, it's the world that's being cruel. When the world says, don't bother me with the thought of death, it's the world's vain wishing that there was no consequence for sin. Death is coming. And it has its target immovably fixed upon every single person here. And it will not be removed. There's nothing that you, I, or anyone can do to cause death to be taken away. Death is universal. The rich men, with all of their best diets, their keto, their uh, agrarian, and uh, their uh, non-GMO, and they've got all of these things, guess what will happen to all of them, every single one? They're going to die. Intermittent fasting and all of the essential oils and all of the non-manufactured uh, you know, things. What's going to happen to every single one that follows all of those things to the nth degree? Every single one will die. And what is shameful is that the church has latched on to this movement and has made it as if it were the epitome of wisdom and piety. I heard recently, you want to know what the best-selling books for Christians are? Christian diet and Christian fitness. Think of that for a moment. The church is focused upon this life. The overwhelming focus upon professed Christians is how do I have a better life? Now we reject without question the nonsense of Joel Osteen, your best life now, but let's get this straight. There are other false representations that borrow from that movement and say, you want to be a good father? Make sure you get your children to eat the best food. You want to be a good mother? Make sure you're avoiding these things in all of the atmosphere. Don't live near power lines. Don't do this, that, or the other thing. But where is the emphasis saying to the children, you need to prepare for death. You need to be sure that when you breathe your last, you're ready because of your confidence in the promises of God. Because of your confidence in every man who died the cursed death on the cross that we might have life If you wish to be a faithful father, a faithful mother, a faithful Christian, a faithful friend, that must be your focus. 
There is a life to come that is immeasurably more than the life that is. None will escape this transition. And notice, thirdly, the life after this world. What is it that we're transitioned into? What is it death ushers us unto? Well, first notice, it is a conscious life. It's not this, you know, nonsense of trying to get to non-consciousness, you know, this, this state of nirvana where we become all one and we just sort of lose our consciousness into the great consciousness, whatever that means. It's not as if Lazarus goes into uh, uh, heaven and then he sort of loses his mind and he's not there. And it's not as if, uh, uh, or rather, the, and now the rich man goes into hell and he's like, well, I'm not really conscious. Notice, he is aware. He's in torments. And what's the word given? Listen, Lazarus, remember you received in your lifetime good things. Lazarus received evil things, but now he is comforted. He has a consciousness of peace and blessedness, whereas you have torment. Let's be clear in this. When you die, you don't enter into a state of non-consciousness. Your consciousness will be elevated. It will be increased. We think at times like, man, my senses are so searching right now. Sometimes there are actually diseases and problems, illnesses that come by making our nerves more sensitive to things. In the everlasting life that is to come, it will be far from doling our consciousness It will be an exciting of that. Whether it is in heaven, the wonder of the flood of immeasurable joy in Christ Jesus, or, dear ones, in hell, the overwhelming, suffocating, and yet undying death that shall grip us. Notice, as it's conscious, it is a divided life. There is what is truly called life after death, and there is what we should call death after death. There is the life that is here with the Lazarus, the poor man who is now comforted. And oh, there's life. But there's the continuation of existence in torment that never ends. What's the worst pain that you've felt? Emotional, physical, spiritual. What's the worst pain you've ever felt? Get this clear in your mind. It is a rub on your back compared to the torment that will be experienced by those in hell. What's the most sobbing and weeping you've ever experienced? It is laughter compared to the shrieking of those who are in torments. The reality of hell is something that will deserve its own attention. But realize this, that what happens after death is unalterable. It cannot be changed. And so you'll see, though it's beyond our immediate text, that there's this word that's stated in verse 26, beside all this, between us in heaven and you in hell, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from here heaven to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence, from you. It is unalterable. It will not change. It will not end. This life is, in many ways, we can say it this way, preparatory for that which is to come. 
Now, brethren, it's important that we, whatever else the world, that we receive this correction that Christ provides. Some never think about death and what happens after it. Perhaps it's because deep down in their conscience they realize it's too much. I don't want to think about it. Have you ever read about the tortuous activities of the Inquisition? Perhaps you've seen the diagrams and perhaps you've seen the models or even seen the relics of the Inquisition and the things of torture and it's almost impossible. It's almost unbearable for us to even think about it. We hear about the immeasurable pain. Think of this for a moment that certain captives of war experience when their stomachs are slit open, their intestines are nailed to the tree, and by point of gun, they're forced to walk around the tree. These things happened. It's almost unfathomable that the pain that's there. Brethren, let's be clear. None of us will ever know the fullness of the torment that now is in hell except you and I go there. To think about it is difficult. Some never think about it. And others, in an effort to escape the difficult thought, make the assumption that, well, no one goes to hell. And in fact, they bolster themselves and say, hell is a cruel thought. They say, if God were good, there would be no hell. And you can see this inflated posture that takes place. And all of it's a facade. It's the beating of the chest. It's the drumming of the drums. Puffing themselves up saying, oh, I've got it now. I've got comfort because I know if God were good, there'd be no hell. When in fact, if there were no hell, get this down, God would not be good. You say, how can that be? We'll consider it next week more fully, but understand this. The goodness of God is displayed in the just judgment against sin. It is necessary that sin be punished if there is a good God. We must come to terms with this. There is a reality of heaven, there is a reality of hell, and we will be in one or the other. And that will happen at death. Others say, well, yep, I get it. I'll be in hell, but it won't be that bad. I'll be with my buds. We'll have the best party in there. And maybe it's a little difficult, but we'll be rocking with the demons and all this stuff. You have all of these thoughts that come out. Brethren, there's no one that's gone to hell that is there with anyone in any degree of fellowship. When you think about what's stated in hell, utter darkness. Do you know adults get fearful when they're in utter darkness? It's pain of fire that is unending, that shall never be evaded. There's none, not the boldest, not the worst, not the most hardened sinner that has even the slightest smirk upon his face in hell. All is anguish. All is tormented. But likewise, brethren, the believer needs to know this. There is no joy in this world that will compare to the joy of heaven. Lazarus, this poor man, this sore-ridden man, this man whose only friends were dogs, is now comforted in heaven. This doesn't get the focus of the passage with purpose by Christ because he's seeking to awaken these who are around him. But it's worth our noting that as bad as Lazarus had it in this life, 
His joy is immeasurably great in heaven. Brethren, we need to get this in our minds. Death is significant. Death is serious. But to the one who's in Christ, they're not issued into this unknown state. They are issued into the greatest comfort that has ever been known. Many of us can think back to our childhood. Times in the night we'd be scared. And what did we do? Instinctively, we ran into our parents' bedroom. We jumped in their beds. We pulled the covers over. Perhaps we huddled up to our mom and dad. Why? Because we knew we'd be comforted. Brethren, there's a greater comfort awaiting you at death. Notice the language that's used here in verse 22. The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The Lord sends His best carriage to collect the one whom the world despised. Do we even know what happened to Lazarus? It doesn't even say that he was buried. The rich man was buried. The idea being a funeral of great estate. The poor man seemingly has none to care for him. But so soon as he dies, the angels greet his soul and usher him unto heaven. That's the certain hope for the Christian at death. However much they've suffered in this life, they will enter upon immediate and lasting joy. Brethren, we as Christians need that correction. Death is the gateway for the Christian and the Christian only into immeasurable joy. There is embedded in this text an exhortation that is meant to awaken us unto this truth. We've mentioned it already, but it bears repeating. Some spend more time planning for a week's vacation. Spend more time researching about all manner of things to come. Schools and retirement plans and recreation and sports and other things. What book I should buy. What fitness regimen I should be on. What this, what that. What car should I get. What should I spend my time with? How should I spend my money? I need a hobby. Which hobby should I take up? They spend more time researching this. There are men who spend more time figuring out who they think is going to be the Super Bowl winner. Who's going to win the World Series. Time is poured into this again and again. People do more to study. Think of this for a moment. How to overcome a level on a game than they do to think about the fact that there is heaven or hell which is certain before them. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, how is it with me? How do I spend my time? Do I spend my time preparing for death? And not just death, you understand, but what lies beyond the grave. Am I living for that? Is my life a witness that I've got heaven in my focus? And I am walking as a citizen of heaven. Is my life an effusion of joy and confidence and peace, of love and deference and kindness? Is it full of all of holiness and godliness? Is it a delightful study of God's Word? Because that's what one does who looks to heaven with joy. Heaven is begun in the soul of the Christian. The communion of Father, Son, and Spirit by the blood of Christ Jesus is begun in us that we now have fellowship with God. And what is heaven? But it is the glorious fellowship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Do you want to know why men talk about heaven like playing golf and playing video games and having a big drink fest? It's because they have no idea of what true joy is. But the Christian does. And so the Christian's life is to be an effusion of these things, a pouring out of these things. One has said, and it's been stated here in this pulpit before, that if you knew you were going to move in the next month and abide in a foreign country for 30 years, how much time would you spend preparing for that? The overwhelming majority of your month between now and moving would be getting ready for the move. Think of this for a moment. You have an eternity that is waiting on the other side of your death. And yet, many of us must confess, we spend more time focused on this world than we do the life to come. Brethren, there's a temptation then for you and for me to prepare for death, and preeminently, as is implied by Lazarus, that we would have faith, the faith of Abraham, Let me ask you this question. When did men begin to be justified by faith alone? Oh, well, maybe it was, you know, when Paul wrote the book of Romans. Maybe it was, you know, when the things changed at Christ's resurrection. No. Abram was justified by faith alone. The sinner has always been saved by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. The sinner has never been saved by any obedience to the law of God. Always saved by faith in Christ. Abram looked to the promise. And you read of it in Genesis, right? He says, and he believed in God and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. And Paul makes much of this to say, look, before circumcision, before the giving of the ceremonies and so on, Abram our father was justified by faith. You and I, can prepare for death in the same way that Father Abraham, Lazarus, Paul, Peter, Isaiah, Elijah, Moses, everyone has prepared for it by looking to the promise in Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life and embracing Him as our Savior. Which if we do, if you breathe your last in the next 12 hours, the next 12 years, or if it were possible, the next 12 decades, you would breathe your last in this world to enter into the life of heaven. Believer, you who have so trusted in Christ, with Abraham, with David, with Moses, with Paul, with Peter, with all of the saints and all of his, see what care God takes for you. He'll send His very angels. And oh, what a thought this is for a moment. Do you remember John the Baptist, servant of God, beheaded? What can we realize from this? So soon as his life ended, the angels of God carrying his soul to heaven. Peter crucified upside down as tradition tells us. And what happened when he took his last breath? The angels of God took his soul to heaven. The mothers, the sons, the daughters who stood in the various coliseums of the day of Rome, their bodies oiled over, all of these sticks put under them, and their bodies lit with fire, or the lions unleashed to devour them. 
What happened when the crowd cheered at the torment that they faced, at their shrieks, at their sighs, at their weepings? The angels gathered up the souls of the believers and brought them into the unending joy of God forever to abide. Brethren, that's why we must prepare. Not only because there's a hell to avoid, but there is a heaven by Christ to enjoy forevermore. Would you stand with me for prayer?